Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Thanks a lot, Mary. Sorry, we gave you a lot of text there. That was <laughs> quite a lot, but uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here uh, once again. Uh, I'm David. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the elders here and um, happy to be able to bring uh, this word for you today. Um, before I get started, I want to thank uh, all of you who were here last week and stayed for the members meeting, uh, members night. It was really a great time to be together. Um, the elders, uh, we were able to share uh, some of the things that, um, and then you all have had a chance to respond to those, to ask questions, and uh, I was really encouraged by some of the thoughtfulness and the questions that were asked and, and things that you were thinking through. So I uh, really thank you for that. I'm, I am encouraged by your commitment to this body, uh, to Christ and his church, and it, it really means a lot that uh, you're engaged and you, you want to know things and, and you want to be a part of it. So uh, I believe that there are bright days ahead for Redeemer, Queen Spark, uh, not because of anyone here, any one of us that are currently in leadership or any, any one of you, really, uh, not because we, of who we might call and bring into this, but because Christ loves the church and he gave himself up for it. And so, uh, and he says that the, even the gates of hell could not withstand it. So uh, we're part of something that's bigger than any one of us and will outlive all of us and is important uh, to God. So thanks for that. Uh, if you weren't there or, and, and this makes no sense to you, or um, if you were there and you want to ask another question, keep this conversation going, I encourage you to do so. Um, we are here to hear from you. There's a QR code where you can uh, submit a question. There's an email address where you can contact us. Uh, obviously, you can come come chat to us uh, anytime uh, our door is open. Uh, I don't actually have a door, but um, theoretically, uh, it is open. So um, come find me, come find Luis, come find Andrew, uh, send us an email, ask a question, make a comment. Um, and uh, we'd be happy to listen, to chat, have a coffee, do whatever needs to be done. That's, we're, we're here to do that. So uh, thanks for that. Um, as we get into our text today, you know, the text here is a direct one. It, it doesn't mince words. It, it puts it right out there. It doesn't dance around tough subjects. Um, some might say it says the quiet parts out loud. Um, but we believe that the Bible is true. We believe that it's reliable, um, that it's there to edify, to help, to build us up. And uh, so I will also aim to be direct and not dance around anything. Uh, I am aware that the kids are in the room, so we'll, we'll keep things uh, PG. Um, but uh, you'll, you'll see how that, how that goes. But a lot of what we're going to say, what I'm going to say, what the Bible says, today, if, if we set it out in the street, it would be controversial. And, and people would have a problem with it. And, you know, uh, depending on how you ended up here today, it may go against something that you think or believe. And uh, hopefully what you hear today is that um, 
there's no one of us that has gotten it all right, that um, certainly not right all the time, and, but there, there's a God who loves you. Uh, and he loves each one of us and he loves everyone walking on Salisbury today and he loves everyone in London and around the world and so much so that he died to make a way for you to be with him regardless. Uh, so please hear my words charitably today. If there's anything that you hear from me, like there's zero condemnation, uh, there's zero um, things that come from me. And if you have questions, you wanna dig deeper into any of these issues that are uh, heavy, on us, come talk to me, come talk to us. We don't wanna be a place that uh, says a difficult truth and then leaves you to wonder or figure it out on your own. Uh, we're here to dialogue, to have conversation. There's um, you know, healthy dialogue and we are happy to grapple with truth together. So hear that from me before we get started. Um, so let me start with uh, a common thing that you might've heard, uh, follow your heart. This, you know, you hear it everywhere. It is the simple kind of moral code that the culture lives by in the West today. Uh, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, you are free to do what makes you feel good, what feels right in your heart, and you carry on and go do that thing. Uh, do whatever you desire. You see it everywhere, right? It's it's, it's come to the point where it's given as good advice at uh, university graduation ceremonies. It's made it into tacky wall art that you might have on your mom's front reception room, right? It's uh, Pinterest level philosophy and it's taken hold on both sides of the political spectrum, right? Just follow your heart, see where it leads you. Um, the problem with follow your heart is that it assumes that your heart is trustworthy, you know, we have feelings, and I think what we, when we say follow your heart, it's like f trust what you feel. Uh, the problem with feelings is, you know, I know I have many contradictory feelings. One morning when I wake up, I might feel one way, and by the end of the day, I feel a completely different way. Our feelings are fickle, and uh, they are very easily warped and manipulated by advertising, by uh, political slogans and politicians that's warped and manipulated by social media influencers, right? Depending on where you are on that spectrum, we get pulled and our feelings and the things are pulling us in all directions. And so the idea of follow your heart, uh, it's not new. It's actually, it's the oldest idea in the book, literally. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they, faced, they were faced with a decision. And it's like to follow what God said or to follow what their heart pulled them toward, right? The, the fruit that looked good to eat. It's, they felt right in taking the fruit, right? So it, follow your heart will lead you astray. And this idea of, you know, as long as it doesn't harm anyone as kind of the one caveat to do whatever you want, basically, uh, it doesn't really work either. The problem with harm is that it requires some knowledge of what harm is. To, to understand harm means you have to understand good and evil right and wrong, good and bad, right? Like, how do we determine what is harm if we don't have anything to stand there? You, you have to have this understanding, this knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong, and so does love. Because what does Jesus define love as? Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. True love, true biblical love is the will, is to will 
the good of another ahead of yourself, no matter what the cost is to yourself, proven by Jesus, right? This is what it is, and it, but he requires to know what is good and, it, and, and what is good for someone. Um, so, for example, follow me with this one. If one of my children came to me and they said, you know, Dad, I really feel like I should do heroin. Even, even like the most secular, you know, wide, you know, farthest in the direction that that goes, like person would probably, would, would definitely say absolutely not, no way, right? We can all agree hard drugs are bad for children and, and adults, right? Like, don't do it, right? That's not, a, that's not up for debate anywhere in society, at least not the, the like 99% reasonable, you know, sane part of it. But, but the reality is if they came to me and said something like, you know, dad, I don't know, I think, I think I'm a girl in a boy's body. I think it's time for me to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend, right? Like I have to understand how do I love them and not harm them? In my, in my response, right? How do, we, how do we care for someone in love and keep them from harm when there's no basis to what is good or wrong or right? And so there's this other common slogan out there and it's like, you know, love is love. And it, it sounds great on the surface. And it, at this point in history, literally almost anything goes. The culture has no sexual ethic. It may be simply that you should pursue whatever pleases you. That's, that's the ethic right now. Everyone is left to draw their own line in the sand. And the problem is, again, that love, harm, hate, right, wrong, good, bad, they all require some transcendent source of moral authority to make any sense and which is exactly what our modern culture has yet to provide. 300 years of the best secular thought hasn't produced a transcendent moral authority that everyone can agree on. This isn't, this isn't me talking, this is like all sorts of writers, left, right, up, down, center, sideways, university, they can't, they can't agree on anything. Even. Even basic human rights at this point have to be based on something, right? Uh, to illustrate this point, this guy Yuval Harari, oh, I meant to bring the book. Um, he wrote this New York Times bestseller called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. You may have seen this one. Uh, it sold millions and millions and millions of copies. Um, and so he writes in the book, he talk, he's talking about the famous line from the U.S. Declaration of Independence where it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right, this is foundational principle that the United States was built upon. And Harari says, you know, according to the science of biology, people were not created. They of course have evolved and they certainly did not evolve to be equal. Uh, and he goes on, the idea of equality is inextricably entwined with the idea of creation. The Americans got this idea from Christianity, which argues that every person was divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we don't believe those Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? 
Evolution is based on difference, not equality. Every person carries a different code, different genetic code, and is exposed from birth to different environmental influences. Uh, this leads to different qualities that carry with them different chances of survival. Created equal should therefore be translated into evolved differently. And he keeps going and um, he says, equally, there are no such rights in biology. There are only organs, abilities, characteristics. Birds fly not because they have a right to fly, but because they have wings. And it's, um, and it's not true that these organs, abilities, or characteristics are unalienable. Many of them undergo mutations and completely lost over time. The ostrich is a bird that lost its ability to fly. So unalienable rights should be translated as mutable characteristics. And he keeps going and he says, um, what are these characteristics that evolved in humans? Life, uh, certainly, but liberty, there's no such thing in biology. Equality, rights, um, limited liability companies. Liberty is something that people invented and it only exists in their imagination. And he says, um, advocates of equality and human rights might be outraged by this, but um, their response, well, we know that people are not equal biologically, but if we believe that we're all equal in essence, it allows us to create a stable and prosperous society. And he says, I have no argument with that. This is exactly what I mean by imagined order. We believe in particular, in a particular order, not because it's objectively true, but because believing it enables us to cooperate effectively to forge a better society. There's a lot in that, and I read a lot of it, but basically he says, Evolution means that you don't have any rights. No one's equal, um, but we should pretend like we do so that society still works. That's, that's basically his point there. The world doesn't have an absolute truth, so it can't define good and evil. And so like Harari, you end up massively confused and talking out of both sides of your mouth, agreeing with one thing and disagreeing with another thing because there's no basic, there's nowhere to stop. You can't get to intrinsic human rights or any general ethic or basic understanding of good and evil through evolutionary survival of the fittest or purely scientific responses to stimuli or complete and utter randomness. Our sense of good and evil that we all feel deep inside of us must be based in something. And as followers of Jesus, you know, this is who we are. We can anchor ourselves to a fixed object because of God's love for us. We know, what he wants and he wants what, we know that he wants what's good for us. Uh, trouble to get that one out. We know he wants what is good for us. And amazingly, he has shown it to us in a variety of ways through his scripture uh, and through the life of Jesus. And it's um, our transcendent moral authority is based on the inner life of the Trinity himself, right? It comes through him on the inner nature of God and he gives it to us because he was there before it all was created. And this is where we find Paul addressing the Corinthians. So long preamble, but here's where we go. The church in Corinth is living in a culture of sexual and ethical ambiguity. People are do what they want. They live, you know, uh, they follow their heart. Many in the church, if not all, probably were participating in this culture before coming to faith. When, when Paul and, and the team arrived there, they found them uh, around the temple in Corinth, right? So they were, they were not, uh, they didn't come in as aliens, they were part of it, and now they've, they've decided to come out. So the church is trying to figure out how to live for Jesus among a culture that's living for themselves. A culture that defines its rightness by following their hearts. There's 
truly nothing new under the sun, is there? Sounds quite familiar. So as we look at these passages, there's a few main points that we're going to get to. One is Christians are called to be set apart from the culture of the world and that sin is harmful. Sin is real and it's harmful and sexual sin is especially harmful. So as we, we're going to read again, we're going to look at different parts, but as we read, like at first I was looking at it and I was like, man, I'm, it's a bit confusing. We've got three sections. There's, um, in two chapters, which, you know, theoretically we probably should have made this into three or four talks, but, uh, we're going to do it all in one, but we've got these three sections in two chapters and we have one section starting with a responding to a sexual immorality, a specific case that's been made, uh, that Paul's been made aware of. And then the third section is addressing kind of a more broad issue amongst the church. Uh, and then sandwiched in between, he's got these, this moment where he's addressing grievances between members of the church that they're taking, you know, to the public uh, judges rather than de- dealing with it internally. So it's, it's a little odd. You're like, why, why would Paul, you know, if you're writing something, if you're kind of uh, crafting a talk like, like this, like why would you put two things like this that seem to be aligned and then have this other bit in the middle? And I was like, surely you would organize these differently. So these immorality issues would be together and then this other part would be separate. And so I, so I wrestled with this for a bit, trying to see, you know, what is Paul doing here? Because I don't think it's an accident and I don't think it's random. But, um, and so, so what, what is he doing? So if we step back a little bit and we think about the context of this is a letter, a whole letter that's happening, not just, you know, a little excerpt that we get. So if we pull back just a sec, Paul since the beginning of this letter, has been uh, challenging the church to build unity amongst themselves around Jesus and not, got, not get caught up in factions of leadership or uh, different things that they are following. So as we discussed last week in chapter four, Paul gives a pretty scathing rebuke of the Corinthians for their arrogance. He says, um, you know, so he, he's going through these different things and he's, he's gets to verse 14, chapter four, verse 14. And he says, I'm not telling you this to shame you. That's not my intention is to just shame you, but to admonish you, admonish, you know, advise, remind, correct as children. So Paul is like a loving parent who sees a child that's doing something incorrectly or going the wrong direction, right? And he, he pulls them aside and says, you know what? Remember what, what, what I told you? This is, this is not the right way, right? And so uh, he continues in verse 21. He says, shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So this is the context that Paul comes to. He's, he is pastorally helping guide the Corinthians to a deeper understanding of the way of Jesus, right? This is a, a church with believers who are just figuring it out. Paul was there and he's gone. They've had a different leaders and they're, they're still trying to come out of um, their understanding of the world before knowing Jesus and now trying to figure out how do we live in this after. And so he's, he's coming back and he's saying, look, this is, this is the way to follow Jesus. This is what this means. And he's going to use a variety of real issues that are happening in the church to help them see Jesus and to help them see themselves in relation to him. So that's where we are. So it's like these things are real things that he's addressing, but it's not so much it's not so much the point that he's trying to correct a specific issue. 
It's that these specific issues point to a bigger issue. And so I want you to think that way. So point number one, Christians are called to be set apart from the world. And the Bible calls this holiness. And the Greek word used here literally means like unique or special, uh, could even be translated as weird. And so holiness is living in a weird way, at least in relation to the culture that you're surrounded by. We're called to be different. Um, to live differently from society in the way we consider everything. Money, power, pleasure, and yes, sex, right? We're called to be different, to be set apart from society and not be dedicated to enriching ourselves, to empowering ourselves, uh, to pleasing ourselves, right? We're to be dedicated to God and serving him. And so it's, these other things are a distraction. And it's important. Holiness is important, right? Another word is consecration. Uh, and that's a big word, but it's basically just to declare, simply declare that this thing is sacred. So you think of like a piece of pottery, a building, you know, a church building, and you've, you've consecrated it. It doesn't make that thing more moral or better than the other thing. It just uh, sets it apart for a different use. Now you use this for this and you use that for that, right? And so we, like that piece of pottery, are set apart for a specific use. And that use is to reflect God's goodness uh, and his own holiness in our lives. So holiness is not actually fundamentally about our behavior, right? It's easy to think that it's, oh, you know, to be holy is to do the right things and to, to be righteous. And um, theologian Richard Foster says, holiness is not about the rules and regulation which fail to capture the heart of holy living. Holiness is sustained attention to the heart. It focuses on the formation and transformation of us, of our soul. Holiness isn't abstaining from sinful acts. It's, it's a transformation of the heart such that you don't even think about those because you've been filled with such love and joy and the fullness of God. So we'll look at Paul as he writes here to these people who are in chapter 6, verse 12, using bad logic, bad theology to act immorally. And we look at uh, in verse 6, 1, they're, they're taking pretty, their petty grievances to external judges. And in five, chapter 5, verse 2, they're being inexplicably prideful while heinous acts are happening within the body. And so he's looking at them and he's saying, look, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus died to set you apart from the world. So glorify God. So we're set apart. We're, there's an intention for how we to, are to live that is intentionally putting us at odds with culture. Why? So that we can look at God and see how he is different than culture. So the second thing we have here is the passage to us that look, sin is real, sin is harmful, and sexual sin is in particular especially harmful. So let's read uh, chapter 6, 12 through 20 real quick once again. It says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I won't be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. 
And the body, however, this is Paul talking again, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually uh, sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So notice as we read that in the very first in, in 12, it's, you've got these quotes around the word. I have the right to do anything. And this is Paul quoting like a common saying in, in the culture of the day. So it'd be like um, saying, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Right? Like people know what that means. And he's, he's quoting it to them. It, he's not affirming it. Just like I wouldn't, you know, affirm so much what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but he's, he's using it and, and, and to, to make a counterclaim to say like, this is what the culture says, and this is what's true. So he says, um, I have the right to do anything, but then he responds, but not everything is beneficial. And being freed from the law doesn't mean giving myself over to the sinful desires. And just because my body desires something, does that, does, does that make it right? Uh, certainly not. Uh, if my body says eat a dozen donuts, right, I know that that doesn't mean it's the right decision, right? We should know that, uh, even, if, even if we fail sometimes. If my body feels like, you know, raging at someone who makes me upset, like just because I have that urge doesn't mean I should act on it, right? So, so feeling something uh, having a desire for something isn't the, the barometer at which we decide whether something's right or good. So I heard uh, there was a pastor once who said, uh, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Uh, it's forbidden because it's bad, right? And that's a pithy little saying. But the point is, like, Paul isn't looking here and he's saying, you know, being with a prostitute is wrong, so don't do it. And, and you know, sleeping with whoever you want is wrong, so don't do it. He's, it's, it's actually probably what you may have heard when you were in like uh, Sunday school as a kid or something, you know, whether they were saying it or not, that's a lot of times what we heard is like, oh, you know, that's wrong. Don't do it. Run away. Like, great. That isn't, yeah, it, it's just not helpful. So, but what Paul is actually saying, he's saying being with a prostitute is harmful to you. So you shouldn't do it. Right. It's not, it's not inherently wrong in the sense that, um, you know, it's not forbidden because it's the forbidden thing. God didn't just pick things to, to forbid them. It's, it's bad for you. And therefore he's saying, you should not do this. Um, the reason God doesn't want us to sin is because sin damages us. Here's an example. If I told Evelyn, she ran away. If I told Evelyn, my daughter, I said, look, I love you completely. There's nothing you can do that will stop me from loving you. I will always love you and I'll always forgive you. Even if I have to die, I'm willing to do it for you, right? And if after I told her this, she comes back to me and says, like, just so I understand you, dad, 
I can go stick my hand in the blender uh, and you'll still love me after I do that? Uh, you know, I, I, if that's what you want to do, yes, I, you go ahead. Like, I love you anyway, but, but listen, here's the thing. It's going to be extremely painful. And you may deal with the consequences of that action for many years. And you'll probably have a scar that will remind you of this for the rest of your life. Right? I don't, I don't have a fundamental problem with blenders. I'm indifferent to the blender. But I don't want my daughter to have a horribly disfigured hand. And I don't want her to feel the pain that she'll feel in that moment. And I don't want her to have to live with the regret of that decision for the rest of her life. Right? This is, this is it, right? And like, like Adam and Eve in the garden, there's no thing that is forbidden from us that is ultimately good for us. God doesn't put good things out there and say you can't have those. The only things that promise, uh, only things that are forbidden are the ones that promise us what they ultimately cannot deliver. God doesn't withhold good things. Psalm 84, 11, he says, no good thing will I withhold from you. But he does tell us what is harmful. So Paul continues in the text. He says that sexual immorality is particularly deeply harmful. And there's, he gives us the reasons why. And so Corinthians have this lie about sex that has two parts. One is they say sex is just physical like any other biological need. And the other is that say what you do with your body has no bearing on your eternal soul. And we're gonna talk about that, but the modern variation of that lie is, you know, I should be able to love whomever I want. God doesn't care who you have sex with. Love is love. Just figure out what works for you what God cares about is that I'm a good, honest person and that I love people and I'm happy. That's, that's the modern lie that we tell ourselves. And so Paul's answer to this is actually, no, it's not just biology and that there's something deeply spiritual about it. And so the truth is we, we, we know this intuitively, uh, whether we say it or not, right? If it was just physical, why is rape so much more psychologically damaging than other forms of violence. The National Di Domestic Violence Center says both men and women are much less likely to report a rape uh, than other abuse because there is shame and trauma attached to that that make it hard to talk about uh, even when you're the only victim. If it was just physical, then when a, when a child experiences abuse, uh, how can it be so difficult to shake off even later on as an adult? Um, if it is just physical, why is adultery so hard to get over for the, the party that is wronged? Why, if it's just physical, why is it so hard to forgive and forget? And if it was just physical, why is it that many people, people's deepest regrets are sexual? Right? God created the soul and body to function as one thing. And he says this in, in verse 16 and 17. He says, um, do you not know that he who unites himself the, the two will become one flesh, and whoever is united with the Lord will be united with him in one spirit. Paul goes back and forth, and he, he talks about the physical and spiritual oneness, and you join with them, and you become one with them. Um, you know, prostitution, it's like the most only physical type of uh, relationship, if we can call it that, right? And so it's, and even that, 
is um, he talks about how it's, it's, it's joining together and it has to be ripped apart. And so that you, you can't pull apart the soul and the body. There's, there's all sorts of like good language that I didn't care to write down, but it's like the, the union of your soul and body is a real thing. And, and it goes on because Christ died to redeem our bodies too. It says uh, in verse 14, it says, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Christ didn't just die on a cross to pay for the guilt of our sins. Uh, uh, he resurrected in a physical body to redeem our physical bodies. Uh, had the body not been important, God would have accepted Jesus' death on the cross as payment for our sins and just been done with it. But he resurrected Christ in a body showing that God cares about our bodies. Um, and thus, verse 13 says, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, right? It's, it's not just, there's not this separation where we're going to be, you know, cherubs floating on clouds, like our bodies will be resurrected. Um, and, and number three, God designed sex to reenact the most intimate parts of our relationship with him. Now, this is unique and amazing, right? So in Ephesians, Paul says uh, this phrase that we see here, uh, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, and he's talking about the spiritual reality of this. And he says, here's how it reads in Ephesians 5, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So the whole marriage covenant and, and the relationship, sexual relationship that comes with that, it all reenacts Christ's relationship with the church. It's all connected. So when you make a covenant of marriage, it's just like the salvation covenant and it mirrors it in so many ways. So watch this. Um, you stand at an altar and unite all of yourself to all of them forever and all of yours becomes hers and all the good and the bad and all that was hers, the good and the bad becomes yours. And the wife takes on a new name in, in many cultures. Uh, you exchange rings, you celebrate with a meal and then uh, you seal the deal after that. In salvation, you go to the, alt to the altar and you say, I do to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, all that was yours becomes his. And all that was his becomes yours, right? What was yours? Shame, sin, condemnation. It all, he takes all of that. And what becomes yours is his righteousness, eternal life, inheritance with God, and all that becomes yours. You take on a new name. You're now God's. Uh, you exchange of rings. We, we call that baptism. Like this is the, the symbol that you're now um, united with Christ. And we celebrate that with, with a meal called communion. Every step of the marriage preaches the gospel, right? Even the act of marriage is a physical illustration of the love of God. Uh, psychologists say that the deepest desire of the human heart is to be known and loved. And that is what's happening in this act of marriage is that someone sees you maybe you know, ideally for the very first time, fully uncovered and fully like bare to the world. And it's, they embrace you and they receive you with no shame and no, no issues, right? Like it's a beautiful thing. And that's, that's why it's beautiful because it's an echo of God's love for you. He sees all of you down to your deepest core and he accepts you and he loves you and he welcomes you in. Even the, the complementary nature of sex with two different genders, male and female, is a picture of our relationship to Christ. Our union with Christ is not one uh, of a union of identicals. We're alike, 
but different. And God wrote this through all of creation. He used opposite pairs to produce the good. So there was day and then there was night. There was sun and moon. There's land and sea. There's earth and heaven. And on this ultimate day of creation, he made male and female, right? It was, it's not an accident. It's not in, um, just one way. It's the way. God wants to protect us from the harm that inappropriate and um, immoral sex can do to us, to others, and to our relationship with him. He wants the best for us. And since he created it himself, he knows that the best is within marriage. Biblical sex is more than the physical, but it's about our soul's desire for communion and intimacy. And that's meant to point us um, to what it will look like with God in eternity. And that not even marriage can give us the full picture, right? It's just a, a shadow of what it will really be like. Uh, as theologian Carl Rayner says, in this life, all of our symphonies remain incomplete. Even the best thing isn't as good as it will be with him in eternity. And so you can, you can craft this. He gives you these good gifts and they're not good in that of themselves. They're pointing to something better. They're pointing us to him. So, so as, we, as, we, as we move toward a close here and, and kind of have worked through the, the high-level things in, in this, this is what I want you to end with. So in 1 Corinthians, in 6, chapter 6, verse 11, it says, um, and that is what some of you were. And it, if you look, what does that mean? What were we? Uh, it says, um, neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters nor adulterers, nor men uh, who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and that is what some of you were. In fact, I would argue that is what all of you were. That is what I was, but not anymore because he continues, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God fellow believer, like if you're here today and you have some form of sexual immorality and sin in your past, you're not alone. Like I'm with you. Like as verse 11 says, that's who I was, but no longer who I am. I've been washed by the blood of Jesus who took that sin with him to the cross and endured the punishment for it. And, and we're sanctified. We're freed from that sin and being made whole again. We're purified by the work of Jesus and we have been justified and given the righteousness of Christ. We are able to stand in the heavenly court of justice and be declared innocent because of the miraculous transfer of Christ's worthiness to us and our unworthiness to him. hear me today, if, if you're here and you feel the shame of some indiscretion in your life, if, if you know that your life and actions, if they were held up to that transcendental moral standard, that you would be guilty, there's hope for you, just like there's hope for me. God doesn't want to hold on to that. He sent his son Jesus for it in particular. 
the thing that is your most shameful moment is what God died for. He sent his son to take it from you and to offer life with him instead. A few will be standing up here and I'll be standing at the back. There, we're here to pray with you and to pray for you, right? So don't let your past define you. Um, as the end of chapter six says, your body is a temple and the spirit of God can dwell within you. You were bought with a price. So glorify God by trusting him today. Give your whole life to him for the first time or come back to him after running away. He's ready for you to come to him. We, we can't live moral lives on our own. We can't do it. But through the work of Christ in our lives, we can pursue wholeness, we can pursue holiness, and we can glorify God with our whole selves. And this is what's on offer. It's what Paul was considering and what he's uh, reminding the Corinthians of. He says, you don't have to live like that anymore. There's, there's a better way. God has actually given you a line in the sand that says, you know, this is what I can actually stand to. This is what I actually live by. And you can reflect his holiness to the world around us. And it's, it's, a, it's a holy call. <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. So let me pray. Father, we come to you with openness of our, of our lives, that we, we recognize that we were once those who ran from you, who were defined by our immorality or our, um, our sin. And God, for some of us, you spoke to us years ago and, and uh, we heard for the first time that you wanted to take that from us and that you loved us and, and, and had done that. And some, some of us, maybe we're hearing it for the first time today, Lord, let us give up the shame. Let us give it to you. We don't need that. We don't want to run to the harm that's out there for us. We want to listen to your call and run away from that. Lord, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, there's nothing that's so bad that you will not forgive. Lord, you died on the cross for each and every one of those things. The worst thing in our mind that we can remember that we've done, you died for that. Lord, could we, we come to you today and give it to you once and for all and live in to glorify you with our bodies, to glorify you with our lives. This is our prayer, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.